0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Eli Lewis Lysett. Eli is a historian, researcher, and writer from the Northwest Midlands of England who in 2020 started the Local Mythstorian Project, a blog in which he delves into the legends and history of that area, which covers parts of Cheshire, Derbyshire and Staffordshire. In his research he digs deep into historical records to find the connections between fact and myth, and how those things have influenced each other over time and been preserved through the local communities that retain a memory of events from the deep past. In the interview, we talk about his approach in more detail and discuss some examples of where it has yielded fascinating results. Headless Horsemen, Arthurian Legends and Teleporting Witches all feature in what was a really fun conversation. Enjoy! Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me on. To begin with, just talk a little bit about the area in the UK that you cover with your project.
1: Sure. So, my kind of area of focus is um, three counties Staffordshire, Derbyshire, um, and Cheshire. And I was born in Staffordshire, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent, um, but I've lived in Cheshire for ooh, about 15 years now. And In Staffordshire and Cheshire, you're forever kind of dipping into Derbyshire, sometimes quite um, accidentally (laughs) when you're driving around. So this is the area um, that I've always belonged to. um, And it's an area that has always been that the myths and legends and the history of the area collectively has always been uh, close to me one way or another. When I was growing up, um, I lived in quite an urban area. Um, area in in an industrial area Stoke-on-Trent so history um, and the the stories connected to it the folklore um, which I kind of accessed through my father he'd take me to various castles dotted around the county was a bit of an escape um, really from um, the kind of the city living uh, as it were Um, so I kind of got um, obsessed with it, um, engrossed with it, and really um, engaged with not just the headline stuff. So we've got, you know, throughout Staffordshire, you've got castles in Stafford and Tamworth, of course, which was the capital of Mercia uh, for a period of time. Um, and in Cheshire, obviously, there's a big Roman history. Um, but I kind of went beyond the headlines is the way I, I put it. So we all know about the Romans and um, and all these kind of headline acts of history, but it was the stuff that lay beneath that, um, that really always captured my attention.
0: Right. And so was there one thing in particular, a story or a piece of history that prompted you to start your project?
1: Well, yeah, yes, there was. So um, even when I was growing up, um, you'd have these kind of picture books of King Arthur or Robin Hood, um, and I was always more inclined as I was sifting through the pages not just to kind of take the the tales uh, of King Arthur at face value, but find out what was going on beneath them as, as best I could. Obviously, it's a lot easier now with the internet to do that. Um, but this kind of bled in to my fascination with, with folklore, and it would have been in the early 2000s that um, I was living in the Staffordshire Moorlands, which is uh, an area that kind of strides between Staffordshire and Cheshire. And there's a lot of folklore there. Um, inherent in the area and i came across something known as the legend of the headless horseman which you could take a view on and um, there's dozens and dozens of legends of headless horsemen throughout the uk but as i kind of got to know more and more about folklore and um, the kind of avenues um, that folklore travels along things started to strike me about this headless horseman legend um, typically a headless horseman is based on an Irish figure called the the Dullahan, um aesthetically at least, so this is where you get the um the head being carried beneath the arm and you know riding around the landscape with uh with a weapon and the carriage. all this stuff is attributed uh, to most um headless horseman legends, but none of it was present in the legend in the Staffordshire moorlands. Um, nor, in fact, was the, the fact that a lot of these characters of uh, folklore, typically, you know, the, the headless phantom riding across the Moorlands, uh, searching for his head, lost in battle. That wasn't there either. There was no origin story. Um, so I started investigating that completely, you know, just as a hobby. Um, but where that took me um, and the things that I came to uncover i guess in, in that process really inspired the whole ethos of what i try to do which as i say is to get behind those legends
0: oh yeah absolutely i i found that story that you um, researched fascinating and it seemed like a great sort of microcosm of of the broader work that you do with your local historian website and and that project well yeah
1: i mean thank you and I, th- I think I think that that's quite right, really. So that tale in itself, it's got so many um, parts to it, and and some things that are just bizarre. So we start with we're, we're in the eighteen hundreds and the eighteen sixties, and there's a a chap called John Slee who goes around the area collecting uh, various folk tales and bits and bobs. It was a very popular kind of pastime. Um, in that period, if you had the means to do it, he was actually um, a retired barrister. So he put together this work, The Ancient History of the Parish of Leek, um, Leek being a um, the market town in the Staffordshire Moorlands. And it was all these accounts of local people who genuinely believed they'd seen this headless horseman riding around the countryside. Um, and it was always there was never never anything too fantastical about it um you know as headless horsemen go <laughs> it was um, um, there was no kind of great embellishment. it was all very literal and very local, so it would be there 's a farmer returning from the market fair who um spotted this figure on the road up ahead and thought it was a neighbor. But, uh, you know, it actually turned out it was this headless horseman and he was dashed throughout the landscape um, and injured as the horseman was dragging him over hedges and across the moors and um, and he died. And it'd be variations on that tale. So um, as I put these things together, it was clear that, you know, far from a kind of regional variation, of a piece of folklore which you'll come across and i'm sure you have come across plenty yourself you know you'll have a tale in one borough and there'll be a variation on it 20 miles away um or in the next county there was none of that it was all localized to this the Moorland region um, and it seemed to me that this was um, indicative of being something else entirely being something born within the psyche of people in the moorlands and that made me feel it might actually be a memory um a kind of folk memory that's been preserved so i began digging um through the archives um right the way back to uh, through the civil war period um, and through all these opportunities um that would have made sense for a headless horseman legend to appear Uh, there was plenty of civil war action in staffordshire um, and certainly in cheshire and yet there's no point in time where something jumps out and creates this legend of the Headless Horseman. If you see, if you see where I'm going, there's, there's opportunity and it doesn't happen. So we go back further and we go back further. And something I wasn't aware of at the time was, um, and I'm sure many, many of your listeners will be, is um, a poem, an Arthurian poem called Sir Gwain and the Green Knight. Are you familiar with it?
0: Yeah, I am. I'm. I'm a lot more familiar with it recently because of the film that was out. I did. Yeah, I did yeah, yeah. know of the poem, but not particularly well. But I, I love the aesthetic of the film. I thought it was. It really captured something there. Yeah. I know the basic premise of the story in the poem too.
1: Well, it, well, it's it's that basic premise, and as as we know, this this rider in green arriving at Camelot, and he's uh, he's beheaded. Um, and various things, that, you know, it's a, it's a mammoth work. I, I, I'm not, I can't, I'm not really qualified to comment on it too much, but but the important thing was, um, kind of general consensus is that this was written um, in a dialect known as Northwest Midlands, which was, um, I say only spoken, there's a, there's, there's a few places outside the area, but predominantly spoken within the very region um, of the Headless Horseman legend too. Um, So this was kind of North Staffordshire, um, South Cheshire, a little bit of North Wales. So one way or another, there's a very um, well-founded view, and I think this is something that people like Simon Armitage uh, subscribe to as well, that that poem written in that Arthurian tradition must have been written somewhere around the Staffordshire Moorlands. So we have these two completely separate, Um, images of a headless rider obviously the Sir Gwaine the Green Knight being world famous now um, but being kind of created within the same landscape and so a little bit of logic from there and I guess I went out on a limb to discover it but I kind of thought well for somebody to have written this poem um, within this specific local region the only people that can do that are people that are educated and have the time and the means to create something like that and actually know about Arthurian tradition. And that would be at the Abbey, um, the, the Abbey and Leake, um, Dialachris Abbey, which was founded in 1215. And by the time of the late 1300s, when this poem was written, was actually under the stewardship of an abbot called William Litchfield, who, huh, um, you know, not the most godly of men. Quite a character. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a character. So he's he arrives, so after the Black Death in England, when all the abbeys are obviously um, religious institutions that are um, expanding the big commercial centres. Um, they're trading in wool and timber. Um, and the, you know, the big businesses, but the black death hits in the kind of 1340s and their workforce is decimated. Um, and as a result of that, um, labor's increasingly expensive and the government, and then through religious institutions, enacts, um, a lot of um, legislation to kind of stop the power that is being ebbed away into the peasantry, into the working folk, um, as a result of the Black Death because of the shortage of labour. So it gets so bad that, you know, at the Abbey there in Leake, um, the abbot has got his own private army stationed at, at, at the Abbey. And this, you know, there's a royal commission that follows because of this and, you know, some all kind of rape, murder, Really unsavoury stuff. But onto this scene at this really um, difficult time in in history, steps a local character called John DeWarton, who's a yeoman. Um, so he's a he's a local figure that's very well known, independent, and has got this feud running with the abbey. And don't forget, at this abbey, somewhere in one of the granges locally, is likely to be the author of the Green Knight poem, working away. Um, and there's a there's a huge kind of uh, conflict that rumbles on for a few months. And this, this local chap ends up being beheaded. Um, and it's uh, an unjust murder. And there's lots and lots of other things that fall into it that I, you know, I won't go into now because I could literally talk about this for an hour. And, and long story short, we've got this seismic event in the population of the Staffordshire Moorlands in the late 1370s. Um, and from that we have this legend that's born that kind of mutates through the centuries forward um, to the legend of the Headless Horseman, but also um, happens about a year to 18 months before a poem about a Headless Horseman is created by one of the um, Conversi brethren of the abbot who has him killed, which turns out to be the Green Knight poem. So, you know, you, you find yourself going into areas that you just never, ever expect.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, just going back to the, the Abbott that you were talking about and that his, yeah. his whole um, conflict with John DeWarton. When I was reading that on, on your website, I was thinking, this would be an amazing movie or a TV series. Wouldn't it just? And I have to admit, when I think of Monasteries, usually, I think of the sort of the serene, ruined monasteries that I visit. (laughs) That I love going to, but they're quite they're quiet and serene places now. But you have to remember that back when they were at their height, it's not too dissimilar to sort of the cartels in Mexico or or a mafia system, is it?
1: It, it, It's 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 no different. I mean this this was through through the research for the headless horseman piece. you know, one of, the, one of the striking things was I found that this wasn't uncommon. Um, just around at the local area in Leakin and Staffordshire, that, that abbey was involved in all kinds of things, riots, um, everything you can think of. It was big business, but it was very much a story throughout England. Um, certainly in Cheshire, Vale, vale Royal Abbey, which... Um, isn't too far from where I'm sat right now. <clears throat> it was incredible, the things that went on there. You had locals chasing the abbot across England when he was on his way to meet uh, meet the king. Um, he'd been called to answer for his crimes. And he was murdered um, miles away in Lincolnshire. And the, the, these group of peasants had got together and tracked him across. It was just bizarre. So... You're quite right, the stories that come out of uh, religious um, institutions of the the later medieval period could indeed uh, make a great film, I think.
0: Mm. And so uh, I guess something I have to ask is, what do you think happens to make people see A Headless horseman? Because there are, like, like like you've uncovered, there are accounts of people seeing something I mean, I'm intrigued as to what you think it might be that takes something from the genesis that you've described and the real life things that were happening combined with a, a medieval poem. And then we get this entity which stalks the moors of Staffordshire.
1: Well, I think there's it's a good question. There's there's three parts to it, I think. So, yeah. So within the, the like I say, within the kind of folk memory of the local population, you've got a situation there with, so the abbot's could um, kill John Dewarton or have him killed with no recompense at all. I mean, he actually ended up in the Sea prison for a few weeks before he paid the fine and got a royal pardon. Um, But if you think about that, that seeps into local legend and it was in all of the archive material through the period and the chronicles. It's the, the single event that's of anything like that kind of scope and magnitude. So people will remember it. But, of course, as it's passed down over time, the um, well, the abbot will be forgotten, um, names will be forgotten, um, and it kind of mutates into this just headless horseman. But as for why people see it, it's it, it's it's something that I've thought on long and hard, and I'll tell you why. The, uh, last year, September last year, I gave a talk um, in the village of Butterton, which is, locally at least, is the, the kind of village where the legend um originated in uh, as far as far as you you know people in the area if you spoke to them they'd say oh it's the legend from butterton and i give a talk to um the history group there and there were people in the audience who um two one who relayed a story of a local lady who'd seen it um and another lady who told me about a grandson who'd seen it so it's kind of crazy to think that this Whatever it is is still going on, but I couldn't answer and tell you what they're seeing because that's a whole different realm, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I see what you mean. From what, reading um, your article about it, a couple of things jump out at me is that there's one case, the the one you were talking about uh, earlier, actually, about the, the chap who's um, coming from market along the road and is sort of taken up by a headless horseman and ridden around and then dropped off and he dies. and you know, move that forward like 200 years or so, that's an abduction.
1: Yeah, 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 no, you, you, you're quite right. And I should say, I mean, those accounts, so they've all got um, common themes running between them, which is nearly every account involves some kind of trip from the market fair or some t- you're traveling across country. And that fed in in the research because it was a market day when John DeWarton was, was murdered. Um, and obviously, as a yeoman, he'd be there. But you're right; it would be an abduction, um, and you've got, you know, the supernatural element of, in your question a moment ago about what are people seeing, and um, doesn't seem to be anything new There's a, there's a report again from the 1800s where um, a local reverend, um, uh, uh, Reverend Reed, who his is a real historical figure who was tethered to St. Luke's Church in a small village called Oncut in the the Staffordshire Moorlands. Um, He's called to a house um, that has seen, apparently, the inhabitants of this farm have seen the headless horseman kind of lurking around and there's a load of poltergeist activity taking place um, with, with his cart veering round. So he's passed away, the farmer, I should say, having seen the headless horseman. And then as a result of that, his farm machinery um, is uh, um, you know, taking on a life of its own. So this, the, the reverence called in with, I think it was seven members of the clergy to perform an exorcism. Um, so all this super, the supernatural element attached to the horseman legend has been very alive and well for at least kind of 160, 170 years, um, in the area. So there's more, there's more work to be done there to uncover that, but it depends what you believe, I guess. I mean, there's some people who may, you know, not saying which side of the fence I come down on particularly, but, um, (laughs) you know, there are people that believe they, they may have actually seen it and
0: who am I to say they haven't. Definitely, one thing as well I should mention is that that I I didn't know actually actually um, is that the site of the the Green Chapel in the Green Knight poem where the Green Knight resides. That's a place in Staffordshire, Lud Lud's Church.
1: Yeah, Lud's Church. Yeah, so so Lud's Church is really popular. Um... It you know, has been for a long time, but really popular today with hikers and dog walkers. And it it's a strange place to access. So it's um um, which is a hamlet effectively, um, on the Staffordshire Cheshire border, and coincidentally was the site of one of the Granges for the Abbott and Leek. Um, is you know, very rural area, and there's a place there called Back Forest. Um, which people hike up through um heavily wooded and eventually you reach um as you as you come up onto a ridge effectively, there is a chasm in the earth that you walk down into, and I know this sounds rather mystical, but it really is um, when, when, when you visit it it 's covered in moss. Um, I suppose it's maybe 100 feet long once you're inside it. And there's lots of legends associated to to the Lollards and and all kinds of things. But yeah, it's known as Ludge Church. And again, a lot of the research when people have been looking to find the location for the showdown that happens in the the Green Knight poem, which is effectively a rematch between Sir and and the Green Knight, that's been pointed out as the most likely uh, venue that that took place in. And from what I understand, the research that people have done to come to these conclusions, um, it's quite extensive. And, you know, people are obsessed with that area of mythology, and rightly so. Um, and they pinpoint different locations to do with that poem, as they do many Arthurian works. But yeah, it's um, it all kind
0: of pans out in that area. Mm. So continuing the... The Arthurian theme. One of the the myths, the legends that you also write about is the the Wizard of Oldly Edge, which is something I remember reading about when I was a kid. It's a classic sort of tale of someone meeting Merlin in the relatively relatively recent history. So what did you find out about that?
1: So, well, yeah, so the legend, um, so Alan Garner um, is... you know, he's popularized the legend, and through some, some of his brilliant work, uh, the author, um, and he's given a lecture series series on this. But yes, there's an old local legend, which is a a farmer is taking a a white mare to market in Macclesfield um which again is in cheshire um for the, for those listeners that aren't aware near to the derbyshire border and he's traveling from another village called mobley um and on his way to market he comes across an old haggard man uh, stood at the roadside who wants to buy the mare off him there and then and the farmer says well you know i can get a fair price i'm going to get more money at the market and the um the, the the old man who is the Merlin figure with with a staff um, doubts this and says well okay you know I'll see you later if it doesn't quite pan out that way um, and sure enough he goes to market the farmer can't sell this mare and he's on his way home that night and he comes across the old man again who takes him on a journey um, through Alderley Edge Alderley Edge being um, the village of Alderley Edge as is, is known. Probably by most people, for all the footballers that live there, (laughs) you know, virtually every City or United player lives kind of within a five mile radius of Alderley Edge. But the landscape itself is very, very ancient. So, um, yeah, the farmer is taken on this journey across the landscape and the old man shatters um, uh, the rock um, of of Alderley Edge itself and takes takes the farmer inside where he finds um, there 's a sleeping knight um well there's several sleeping knights um, who are all awaiting that classic um, sleeping hero tradition awaiting to ride out awaken, <laughs> and ride out to save England, but one of them's missing a horse um, so so rather conveniently um, so the farmer duly sells sells the horse, and that 's the basic legend and he he, he receives in return um a chest of gold in in payment so you've got this legend that's anchored in the landscape and you have you know it's really kind of um well represented there's there's a couple of pubs in in elderly edge itself the merlin uh, the wizard and the legend going back into at least the early 1800s locally but you pair all this with the fact that what Alderley was really famous for throughout history was its copper mines and um, vast network of copper mines um, up on the edge itself uh, which is an escarpment looks out over Cheshire um, huge uh, probably uh, along with the Great Orme which is a, a similar site in North Wales it's one of the largest ancient copper mine complexes um, in, in Europe and of course this would have been something that dominated the lives of the people of the edge for thousands of years. You know that's their industry, and it struck me as I was, you know, looking for this, trying to find this origin to this Merlin figure, because it's so inherent around that local landscape that, that for me, the legend doesn't account for how popular it is, because most people haven't heard of the legend to be honest with you, um, and it's all been heard of a grandfather or a grandmother and, and passed down. And it struck me that the people that controlled the copper mines were in one way or or another um part of the the druidic priesthood um before the roman invasion they were in you know they were um, arbiters of law industry as well as all the magical stuff and what more magical kind of inference is there than cracking open a rock of of the earth and taking out metal? it must have seemed. Just like wondrous, um, how that happened with the alchemy of it, um, and so in truth you 've got this 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 kind of bastion of um, wizard like figures for one of a, a better word, you know how people would, would see them, and the magic that was being performed to transform the rock into uh, metal um, dominating the history of the folk memory of that area. So for me, you get that, and then you get this this Merlin legend emerging out of it. Um, it's, all, it's too coincidental, um, really. And then furthermore on that, there was an extraordinary discovery. In fact, I think there was about six um, discoveries made throughout the 1990s and a little bit later um, around the edge of not just copper being worked, but gold and they found these gold axe head ingots, as how they're described. Um, if you imagine maybe three inches long, like a miniature axe head made of uh, of solid gold with markings on it that have not been able to be identified um, by Manchester University, for example. They're saying they don't know which culture this belongs to. And these are buried in different locations all around Elderly Edge. And suddenly you throw that into the mix as well, and you've got this this incredible kind of scene happening up there, you know, and t- towards the end of prehistory before the Roman invasion, um, that's just echoed down the centuries as these things do. Or so I find in the local legends that then emerge out of uh, the soup of all that.
0: Mm, yeah, that's, that's that's fascinating. I mean, is that story one of the earlier connections between Cheshire, that area, and an and Arthurian legend?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's one of the most deliberately, um, one of the most deliberately acknowledged and widely acknowledged stories, I think, in the whole area, because there are there isn't that much Arthurian connection um, beyond these quite um, almost outrageous examples of uh, of you know connections made, and in the oral oral history of the area as well. So, the legend of Alderley. Um, uh, as a recorded piece of work, uh, first written down, like I say, I think it was in the early 1800s. Um, but it's obviously been doing the rounds for a few hundred years before that as well. Um, but it needs a great amount of time to embed in the local psyche or uh, to become folklore before anyone actually acknowledges his existence.
0: Mm, yeah. When I was reading it, I did, I did chuckle to myself slightly at the thought of when... Merlin was organizing that it was 140 warriors into that cave the moment when he realizes that he hasn't got enough horses for everyone he's like I'll sort it you guys will go to sleep I'll I'll go and sort it out don't worry about it yeah I'm going to the market
1: <laughs> but but it's it I think the the Merlin legend um can you remember was it towards the start of last year there was um an announcement that the blue stones of Stonehenge um, they had decided had indeed been transported from somewhere else um, yeah yeah the that the site in Wales was it Warnmorn? morn um i don 't know how to pronounce it, so apologies no it
0: 's um, um, it's in pembrokeshire isn 't it I mean I know the, yes. the area
1: yeah. yeah the, the hills, and this was i think you know they discovered it was the chap from time team who who it was his pet project from what I understand. Um, and yeah, it turns out that true enough, this a stone circle had been moved to Stonehenge uh, from like 150 miles away. Um, because, I mean, the most logical reason for that is that the culture that erected it first in Wales themselves moved onto Salisbury Plain. However, there'd been a legend, um, an Arthurian legend, of Merlin transporting the stones of Stonehenge from Ireland. That, that that was recorded by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the ele- um, 1100s in the 12th century, and obviously people quite naturally assume that's just a story. But now it would appear that indeed the stones from Stonehenge were transported not from Ireland but certainly from the West um, to their current site, and that that had somehow, you know, had mutated and had been transposed by the 1100s um or well, the twelve hundreds to being um this this legend of Merlin. The action had been remembered and the recording of it had then designated how it was paid forward. Um, so it was to some people it was no surprise that they'd found this connection between these two sites and it was no surprise that they'd finally proven that the stones from Stonehenge were brought the blue stones from another location. But it was through the man the the mechanics of folklore that that had been recorded even best part of a thousand years ago from now mm. so i th- I find that and in a lot of the stuff that i do locally um and r- write about and investigate that kind of sums up how that that uh the mechanism seems to work yeah the, it, yeah definitely
0: I, I i agree i feel like it's it's the the imagination and and history working together because like we were talking about earlier there's We still we still have these sorts of legends now about secret bases, secret secret underground military bases and things like that. And I suppose with a with a with a culture and a community that were experienced in mining, they would have people who would regularly go into the earth and find things as as well as doing their job. And like you were saying, bringing this metal out of the earth, they'd also encounter things or find things when they were when they were in there themselves. So there's this, like you are talking about, there's this, this sort of mixture of actual experience and, and the imagination, and, and somehow what happens there can be preserved in, in folk memory.
1: Well, I think, what other way would there be? Because yeah. it's, you know, you, you tell the stories, or rather the stories kind of tell themselves because they emerge out of, like you say, the real history and experience, and, you know, the the understanding of the people... Which, you know, is probably far better than our understanding will be about that stuff anyway, because they're living in it and living with it every day. But that in turn then becomes the, the, the legend. And, you know, the people that were in that example there to do with the copper mines, the people that were running those big businesses, you know, um, these were in existence for 1500 2000 years before the roman invasion and then when the romans came they just naturally just moved in and took over um these existing institutions they were run by the you know the only people that could run them which would have been immediately before the roman invasion the druids but the kind of proto druidic priesthoods going back from there and it's a very contentious topic actually i I find and that people want to really kind of bookend the um the period that any um group of uh, of people or organization or priesthood whatever it might be exist and i think it's a lot more messy than that you know things don't just start on day one and end on day 306 or, or whatever they the germination of those things are before so my point with that is i feel that the control of those industrial complexes would have been always within the gift of the ruling classes which tended to be um priestly ruling classes of some form and that memory very easily becomes um that merlin figure um as we come towards the modern age
0: Mm. Um, another piece of history that you've written about which i've i only read recently um but it's fascinating because i think it involves teleportation uh the the (laughs) bakewell witches can we talk a little bit about them
1: Absolutely, it's um, so. Bakewell is a, a lovely market town in in the Peak District um, in Derbyshire, just over the border from Cheshire. Um, and again, it's one of those places that, if you're familiar with this area, uh, the northwest and the North Midlands, um, people will have visited for for various reasons. But yeah, there's a there's a legend there, a story, effectively, um, that during the uh, the early 17th century there was um uh, i do you know what I, I will run through this with you because it 's quite bizarre so there's um <laughs> there, there's a milliner um a hat maker um who's got a a business there in Bakewell in the early sixteen hundreds and she's also got um lodgings but boarding lodgings, and she's got a a lodger living with her who wakes up one night in the early hours and through the cracks in the floorboards of his room can see the milliner um, downstairs with her sister uh, performing an incantation um, a rhyme um, over thick, over thin to London um, is is the kind of genesis of this rhyme and suddenly they vanish into thin air um, so he's, he's looking through the cracks in the floorboard and can't believe his eyes so he repeats the, um, the incantation that he's heard and suddenly he arrives in London as if by, well, literally as if by magic. He's teleported to London, to a cellar in London beneath um, a cloth suppliers. And when he's found there, he's arrested. And he said, well, what are you doing here to the judge? And he says, well, it wasn't my fault. The witches did it. Um, effectively, I just, I just repeated what I saw my landlady doing. And this is his excuse. Um. And, of course, in those times, uh, you know, accusing someone of witchcraft was not um, something to be taken lightly. And you, we actually end up with the two... Um, hangings of witches in Derbyshire in the 10-year period coming from these two women that were living in Bakewell. So it's a really sad tale. But what, but what's actually happened as we... Because I'd, I'd always known about this locally. There's witch marks in buildings in Bakewell. It's obviously something that's emerged locally um, and a real contention for the witch craze. Um, but as, as I've stripped away the layers, well, what we actually have is somebody who was sent to London... Um, on behalf of the milliner, so a tradesman, and um, that yes, was lodging with them. He it, 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 it mentions in the legend that he's Scottish, um, so he's lodging with them, perhaps on his journey to London, and he gets to London and he's in a dishevelled state because more than likely he spent all the money that was taken for this deal for the cloth, and he's drunk, and he's maybe maybe he's on the rob, as they say, and he's and he and he's in the cellar. Of the actual the um the wholesaler and he's caught red handed and his excuse then is that he's been teleported from Bakewell, and the judge actually because obviously with all this stuff I'm giving a very light scheme here naturally, but all this stuff with when it comes to crime and punishment and the, and the and the witch trials from the witch craze as well, most of it's quite well attested in the record, whether it be assize documents. I mean, going back to the Headless Horseman, all of that stuff is taken from his wife's testimony in the assizes. But yeah, here with with the Baitwell witches, um, the judge obviously doesn't believe him. He finds it kind of a ridiculous notion, but quickly changes his tune because he realizes that it's a great way to curry political favour in that period. Is if you were grabbing yourself a couple of witches, effectively, um, the the authorities found out about King James himself. Was um, he'd wrote a book on witchcraft um, relatively uh, recently to this happening? It was very much the in vogue way of stamping your authority and your you're currying favour with royal connections if you're in any position of authority. It got you noticed. So sure enough, um, they are hanged. And for a long time, um, the reason that this this story's kind of been viewed with speculation is it's just such a ridiculous notion. But it's not. Not really compared to other things that were happening in witch trials at the times. So, you know, A few years later, we've got the Pendle witch trials, which I'm sure you're familiar with um and some of the things that are said in court there about the things that those supposed witches had done are far far outweigh the bizarre nature of the idea of teleportation so it isn't actually um this really far-fetched idea in the context of the times it's it's relatively mundane but it's unusual because teleportation doesn't come up so much throughout other cases of the era so that's why it gets noticed
0: yeah absolutely i mean it did really intrigue me. it's just sad that it's sort of couched in some very bad things happening to people who didn't deserve it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's rife that the a lot of stories have emerged from that period. There's so many books that have been written, some great books as well, on on the whole subject of the witch craze. Um, but the commonality between them is definitely, you know, I don't I don't want to put too much emphasis on it, but the sadness of of what was happening and you can find it in so many uh corners of the country i mean around in cheshire as well and maybe we'll move on to that um the the Rainer witches they were you know two witches from the same tiny hamlet in cheshire count for um there's 110 um about 112 rather hangings for witchcraft and two of them are from the same tiny little hamlet in cheshire um in the whole period and just the the kind of shadow it casts over people's lives because people believed um at that point that this was all very, very real. And I know there's plenty of people who believe in witchcraft today and there's many forms of it and whatever those personal beliefs are, you know, is, is great. But back then it was a very literal belief in, you know, cavorting with the devil um, that that's what people were actually up to of a Saturday night.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to get an idea of in that time period of how many people may actually have been practicing what we would class as witchcraft. I mean, I, I imagine that there probably weren't too many people doing the things that people were accused of, but but it's... it's, well, but it's yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no,
1: you make a great point. And, and I, I could sense there that it's, yeah, so what are people doing that's been classed as witchcraft? and what are people doing that we might view as more nefarious um yeah. yeah as we look back and the the strange thing is every now and then in in, in the documents of the witch trials you'll get somebody who admits it just outright mm. admits it and obviously there's a lot of coercion to do with getting the confessions in the first place but then, this is is, is post the, those um, the, those kind of information gatherings and uh, and everything that happens there, and they will ab- just admit it. Uh, and that for me, a little bit like earlier when you said, you know, would they have the source men? What are these people seeing? <laughs> uh, to me, I go, well, wow, what are they saying that they're actually
0: doing? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's really interesting as well. I mean, it's there are things that are going on then that. That haven't really changed too much even today is i think some of it is just people who maybe don't have access to education they have access to another form of knowledge like local knowledge and i think that's sort of what in some ways what folklore is it's like a, it's a local knowledge that is is sort of outside of academia and if people use that and get too successful or or know too much then i can see why you would want to not that you all should but i can see why you would be afraid of those people sort of taking what you have and it's not really changed now i think those sort of those tropes are still very much prevalent today but the the witchcraft and the reasons people fear it and the reasons people overreact and accuse people of doing things that they haven't is it's all so enmeshed it's hard to sort of cover one without the other
1: well it's a very kind of an like extreme version of cancel culture I guess there's <laughs> yeah. he, he did like well it's, it's funny people say oh it's a witch hunt um for for, for for various situations but I think you're quite right I think I mean uh, what really kicks off the the um the proclivity for witch finding witch hunts from the witch trials is during um the 1500s there's a book written called uh, the hammer of the witches that essentially yeah. s- suddenly means that um up until that point if people were pa- practicing witchcraft or were deemed to be and whatever that meant to that locality there was kind of a blind eye that was turned um and i think you're quite right that would be people who had a lot of local knowledge and perhaps herbology and things like that mm. and were just you know, well-known with their local community. And of course, that's a threat to authority anyway. Um, but largely, it was ignored. But when Hammer of the, the Witches is, um, is written, there's so much in there that kind of makes it, not just makes it okay to go out and seek these witches out, but kind of gives you a, 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 a badge on your lapel, as it were, um, for doing so in the eyes of um, the the church, in the eyes of royal authorities, you know, closely tethered to, to, to the church. And so that really pushes it forward. So I think that all those instances where you do have people who maybe were just fonts of local knowledge and herbology and things like that, they're then ripe for attack. And of course, if your neighbour doesn't like the fact that you're popular or that you seem to have knowledge they don't, suddenly there's a label to put on you. Um, and loads of local disputes suddenly just turn into accusations of witchcraft in the blink of an eye. Um, so it's really, it's there's so much work that's been done on that period, but for me, I still think there's, there's room for really understanding what was going on, because I don't think we do it's so much of it it's opinionated naturally but I think there's a space there Ronald Hutton's done some great work on it but there's a space there for us yet to really understand the social and the cultural phenomenon and the awfulness of it and how that came about
0: yeah I agree I'm really interested in the people that were doing those things I'm sure there were people who were doing things that we would now class as as witchcraft but sort of lowercase w witchcraft I guess (laughs) Yeah, well, by that do you mean, because that, that interests me, you,
1: you're saying that, but the lowercase w of the witchcraft, do you, do you mean people who were doing herbology and things like that, or, or other, other things?
0: I, so I think definitely herbology, I think some were probably mostly doing that, but I imagine it would be hard to have a knowledge of herbology, perhaps when you probably didn't have a lot of access to you know, recording everything. You'd, you'd have to spend the money that you had on what you needed. So you would have to, you know, you'd have to have a great memory and, and sort of understanding plants in a, in a non-material way, I think. Like, yeah. you know, there, there are cunning people who, who definitely had an understanding of um, plant spirits and they connected that to astrology. I, I was at a talk recently about a chap called Charabelle who was he? existed He was living in the sort of nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and he was a, a cunning man from Wales, and he he wrote a book about the botany and astrology and and their connections. And so, yeah, I think that was going on. I'm not sure. I mean, that's the sort of person that was there. And I and I guess really the the scope of what they were doing is is limited only by their imagination i think and i imagine that they got their hands on some pieces of of esoteric writing you know things like grimoires or mm. those sorts of little books of occult knowledge and and just applied them in their own way so no schools or anything but just these people who were interested in this stuff and applied it to everyday life and things like herbology and you know other things like being someone who could lift curses or well which, i think
1: which, yeah yeah, sorry. I just when you said that then about curses, because that's the other side of it, isn't it? As well, that's that's running alongside that is where where do they come into play?
0: Yeah, um, there's a there's a great book called "Curse Britain" by Thomas Waters. who was a guest on a podcast a little while ago, actually, and he's done a lot of work on on curses and stuff. And he and it is covered in "Curse Britain," as you might guess from the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> you'd hope so you'd hope so but yeah i mean from what i remember reading that book is that they someone who could lift curses they sort of performed a a mental health function um because often these communities were i mean, as i'm sure you know they were they were quite far flung and they didn't have the facilities that we have now they so to cut a long story short, because I think I'm waffling now, but I think no, there were no, no, people no. that offered services to the village. And there's, in part of doing that, they went where they could for the knowledge. And I think some of that went into sort of pretty esoteric realms. Maybe not always spells and stuff, but just a, a more sort of metaphysical, occult understanding of the world.
1: I think I think you framed that really well. Um, because I think that that would certainly be the fear of, of witches, would be the fear of those. People, uh, when that's set against a traditional, you know, um what well, Christian mindset of the period. Um, the you know, the fear of those people. And I think then what happened was over the period of perhaps kind of 60, 70 years. Because it was seen that you could you you had a, a form of recourse now to um, address any disagreements or any fears you had about that kind of personal way of life, then the bandwagon comes along and you're pointing the finger at everybody you don't like or you're saying there's now a witch. Um, I think that's what happens, but I think it certainly starts off with, dare we say, the genuine witches for for whatever that that means to people. But uh, you know the 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 kind of view that you've just outlined. Um, yes, for those people who provided those services to a local community, I feel that's probably where it started. And then, um, well, you know, pardon the pun, but all hell broke loose um, with, with with people doing things along those lines.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So what a some of your other favourite myths that, that blend with history in Cheshire and Staffordshire and where you write about? Um, oh, well, my, my favourite. So the, there's there's these little um,
1: local histories. So, so what I try to do is uh, stay away from the traditional retellings of the folk stories of the area. You know, there's people that do that really well. Um, and the, the the general folklore and you know there's loads of great books on it that you can find on amazon etc and what, what my whole thing is to take the the legend the myth the piece of folklore and to see what is at its origin of that particular case to really see what's been beneath it so the, there's one area of cheshire that borders the peak district and do you know the area at
0: all i meant to ask um only vaguely, I've been a couple of times, but I sort of know it more by reading about it than by being there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure,
1: sure. Well, Cheshire borders the Peak District, and um, the kind of the the topography rises into Derbyshire um, in the eastern corner of Cheshire. And there's one particular place there, a um, the hamlet or village now called Raynow, uh, Ravens Hill, as, as as was hundreds of years ago. And there's a few curiosities dotted around that landscape that never really made much sense to me. So there's Jenkin Chapel is a really curious building in the middle of nowhere. It's at the site of an ancient trackway called um, Saltersford um, in East Cheshire. And this is a church, a lay chapel, that is built in the style of a local cottage. And it was built by the locals unconsecrated by the church for i think the better part of a 100 years once it was done um and it just always struck me that it's quite an endeavor um because they paid for it themselves and they had um religious um nourishment as it were not too far away in Presbury, which is uh, not far from Alderley, actually but they took it themselves that they needed to build this chapel at the site of this ancient crossroads and you know, As I'm sure you're aware, and many listeners will be, crossroads are probably one of the f- places you're not going to build a chapel because mm-hmm. of all the things associated with them, suicides, witches, uh, the wandering spirits, all this kind of stuff. So this happens, Um and a few years later, and I, I say this because this is what really brought me into investigating um, this period in that locality. A few years later, there's a... Um, A chap dies out in the snow on Christmas Eve. He's a jagger. He's come, um, and a jagger is um, someone with pack horses who goes from community to community, selling their wares, selling salt. Very valuable part of the setup in the early 1700s, as you can imagine, in in a rural area. And he's found dead um, on the Christmas morning. And at the side of his body is a single woman's shoe print, and this has been passed down in legend. And there's a stone there now, his name was John Turner, that says he passed it away passed away in the snow, the snow drifts. A single woman's shoe print was found at his side. So I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at this chapel that's been created only a few years earlier. And I'm thinking, what was going on there? Because you've got this local community that are obviously driven by something to achieve some kind of ends, whether that be to commemorate the specifics of a mysterious death, you know, we're talking 300 years ago to create this chapel um there at this crossroads and as we investigate that we find out that the whole that landscape um just 100 years before we have uh, the rainow witches who were accused of bewitching various members of the local population they're hanged but going back into earlier history through the medieval period that this whole landscape has been um were dominated by some kind of supernatural creature that no one can quite describe. Um, Thurs Bitch um, is the name of the earliest dwelling in the area. That was something picked up by Alan Garner as well. It means... uh, valley of the demon is the translation from old english so you've got all this this kind of melting pot of um, people in local religious houses writing about something that seems to live in the mist is the way it's described that's from uh, burton abbey um, because stories of this place have reached them so it's not so much a specific folklore it's what's happening there that drives people's wonder and drives people to try and resolve it, frankly, by plonking a, a religious house in the middle of this landscape as some form of protection. Mm. So that, so that, that's the kind of thing. I, I think if we just, we relay the folklore, it's a tale that starts and finishes. But all this folklore is coming out of something greater. It's coming out of um, a situation of hundreds of years that, you know, never resolves. Um, so that whole area talk about the the local area in that part of Cheshire is something that continually fascinates me Um, anytime I'm anywhere near there I'm drawn to take another look Um, and I've written as extensively as I can about it as well about the the causes and the reasons for that but I would implore people to do that in the local areas you know the myths and legends that exist is to ask why do they exist what's
0: beneath them. Mm. So when you've been there what what sort of vibes did you get when you visited that chapel?
1: Well I came across it so I literally I was out walking one day and came across um, this place and it just looked made no sense to me as I say it looked like a, a kind of early 18th century cottage but it had got a huge relatively large chimney stack on it it had got um, a dedication to Saint John the Baptist above the door of it and I went in it was it was open. And I went in, it was empty, very bare inside. I actually thought from my initial visit that it would have been far older than it was because it had that kind of whitewashed look that the Puritans had been in and destroyed everybody's fun during the Civil War. It had that, that kind of look. And there's a huge Bible on the, on the altar. Um, I can't believe it hadn't been stolen, frankly. I was, I, was, I was leafing through this thing and it must have been at least 300 years old. And it just felt like a place out of time with everything around it. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, A place that didn't belong there. um, Very odd. Um, And those kind of vibes that emanate from it. And other people I've spoken to that have visited as well, uh, locals and people from further afield, all seem to have the same kind of impression of the place. That there's something... uh, You know, I don't want to go on too much of a spooky tangent, but it feels like... That The idea that it seems to have been doing the rounds for hundreds of years, that there was something in the landscape that people were wary of, some kind of force or whatever it might have been. Yeah, it certainly felt that way, (laughs) that there's some kind of foreboding there. It's it's a peculiar thing. I've not come across it anywhere else I've ever been to. So I would uh, encourage people to visit um, if they get the chance and see what they think, because your mind could get carried away so easily with that but i try and be quite stoic about it and acknowledge the fact that this place does seem to be home to some feeling at least uh whether that takes some kind of other form uh, for other people i don't know
0: mm. no i i absolutely know what you mean you, you mentioned alan garner a couple of times and i i love his work mm. and mm. his ideas about how the, there are these sort of other worlds that sit alongside ours and robert holdstock as well with his mythico wood book i Mm. i love that that book and and the ideas contained in that so i i have a lot of time for that sort of idea that there's this sort of other world almost that exists alongside our own and it feels like you you can go to places where the line between those the the veil or whatever you want to call it is is thinner
1: it's thin, yeah. You, where, where I think I think you're quite, quite right. I think you are Alan Garner. He's a you know he encapsulates so much of that stuff so brilliantly, doesn't mm. he? Um, but I have to say, from from a personal point of view, that kind of vibe is something that's always resonated with me. Um, because mm. even from a historical point of view, I think when you know about the the history of somewhere, obviously with Jenkins Chapel and that kind of stuff, that's a bit more ethereal. But when you know about the history of somewhere, it does feel like that's a world that's living alongside your own as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Eli, this has been a brilliant chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you. If people want to find out more about your, your work, the Local Myth Historian website and, and your books, how best do they do that?
1: Uh, well, very well pronounced, I have to say there. Not <laughs> So yeah, so it's my website is thelocalMythstorian.com. Um so take take a look at the website, check it out, uh, register. We've got a whole digital library of um kind of antiquarian works that you can view when you register, and there's lots of features on there. On Twitter, um at TLMythstorian, it'd be great to connect with people on there as well. Um hopefully we've got a podcast coming later this year. Um, you know, um, huge kudos for what you do because it's not easy. <laughs> at all. Um, there's a couple of books on Amazon as well. Myth, Story journeys um, that kind of encapsulate a lot of that local writing. Um, but yeah, that that's me at this point with the project. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you.
0: Likewise. I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Eli. Thank you for listening to my interview with Eli. His hard work and research have yielded a wealth of fascinating and unusual stories from the history and legends of his part of the world. And you won't be surprised that I heartily recommend visiting his website if you enjoyed our conversation. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some the Sphere on Twitter at spherical pod, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, Be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.